This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy. Hello, my name is Alex Conway, an EU Affairs and Global Europe researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin. This interview is part of the IIEA's Global Europe Project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs, which explores Ireland's place in Europe and the world. Today's discussion examines the Irish referendum campaign in May 1972 to join the European Economic Community, which later evolved into the European Union. I'm delighted to be joined here today by three campaigners who were involved at the time. Catherine Meenan, a former special advisor to Antisha Garrett Fitzgerald, Alan Jukes, former Minister for Finance, and Tony Brown, former International Secretary of the Irish Labour Party. And my first question is, what was the political, economic and social landscape like in Ireland ahead of the referendum? Yeah, um, I think people were very excited, is my memory. Mm. Um, Certainly my memory of the campaign was how lively it was. I mean, there were very few people who were not involved one way or the other. I mean, there was obviously a strong, uh, a vociferous uh, anti-voice, but everybody had a view, everybody cared. It really was regarded as a very big moment in the history of of, of the state. So I I certainly think that was true. Um, In terms of the campaign itself, you have to remember that the government was campaigning actively for a yes vote, which is not something which would be doable today. So there was a lot of organizational infrastructure in a way I don't think I had seen before, uh, went in behind the campaign and people responded to that. I think that's uh, very much in my experience too. I was working for the Irish Farmers Association at the time. Uh, and of course, there was a very big interest on the agricultural side of the possibilities of being involved in this new market. Um, and it was the kind of campaign that we couldn't see today. It, it revolved very largely around large meetings in parish halls, town halls, uh, all of these kinds of venues. Um, and as Catherine said, people very passionately involved in it, both on, on, on the advocacy side and on the opposition side. Um, what struck me was that um, in some parts of the country, uh, you could find both in agricultural and, and, and urban areas, there was a kind of a, a semi-religious undercurrent to this in that um, sections of the church uh, being of a very conservative view at the time uh, were either mildly or rather more energetically opposed to this idea of getting involved with a kind of a godless Europe. Um, And it was the first time, I think, uh, that I saw, uh, I was quite a young man then, it was the first time that I saw a, a kind of a stirring of the population uh, to say, well, we don't necessarily have to take our lead uh, from, from that kind of view. Um, the other, and, and there were some strange people involved in that. One of my great memories and one of the friendships I formed during the campaign was with Father James McDyer of Glen Column Kill, who was an absolutely splendid uh, community activist and a man of great imagination and a, a very inspiring figure. Uh, and yet he was totally opposed uh, to, to joining the European yeah. Union because of this social, religious conservatism uh, that feared all these things. And, you know, the, 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 the uh, prognostications that were made were, were, were dreadful. 
you know, we were all going to be conscripted into a European army. Rural Ireland would be devastated. There wouldn't be a farmer left in the place. Irish industry would die completely. Any foreign firm that had located in Ireland by then, and we did have some, would immediately up six uh, and head off to the continent. And I think the, the, the central element underlying all of this, and we see it even today in the continuing anti-EU uh, trends there are in our society, uh, they, they seem to deny any possible agency for the Irish people or the Irish political system or the Irish social system in responding to um, and taking advantage of opportunities or mitigating difficulties that we face. I um, have a slightly different situation in that of the three of us, I was the only one that effectively did not take part in the campaign. I was, um, I was working, I was working in, the, in the sugar industry, but I also uh, was led into the Labour Party when I got to now lately lamented friend Brendan Halligan. And um, I became uh, secretary of the party in Don Leary. I was one of a considerable minority there who was in favour of entry. And uh, people like myself had to make a decision at the time when the campaign began. Um, I was not prepared to go out and knock on the door and ask people to vote no. I was loath even to hand out a leaflet advocating vote no. Um, but I was also quite convinced that I was not going to resign from the Labour Party because of this, because it was quite clear that on the day after the referendum, we would have voted to enter the European Union and what I wanted to do could go ahead. So I restricted myself. I acted as secretary to the constituency council. I drew up canvassing schedules. I took in and filed canvassing reports and did all that sort of stuff, but did not get my head above the parapet because I did not want, if I went out and met people, I was going to say vote yes. And uh, I, I survived. Um, as secretary of the constituency council. Uh, and of course, at the same time, I was doing my, my work for the sugar company, which was deeply involved in, in, in Europe. So the, the, the Labour Party situation uh, was one where um, uh, the, uh, the, the party uh, already, the majority saw the European community as deeply conservative and capitalist run and uh, was proposing uh, quite radical policies for the future of Europe, but was also heavily influenced by elements of the trade union movement who were terrified about job losses. And they, they were extremely influential on the man who mattered in the party at the time, who was uh, Brendan Corge, very deeply committed transport union man. And uh, he was convinced that we were not ready for this thing and that the correct thing was to vote no and attempt to negotiate an association agreement, which would uh, bridge the gap to when we would be able uh, to play our full role. Um, so uh, uh, the, the group in, in, in the party that were favourable to a yes vote uh, included Brendan Harrigan, Barry Desmond, people like that, and basically, Brendan had to do his job as general secretary, but I did as little as I could, and the rest of us uh, waited for, for to be liberated by the electorate. And one other thing, that those three of us, Brendan, Barry and myself, were all members of the executive of the Irish Council of the European Movement. And on the opening day of the campaign, we applied for leave of absence. 
and we were granted leave of absence from the executive and stayed away from the meetings during the uh, campaign, I rejoined 48 hours after the result and went with Neville Cleary and others on a European movement delegation to Congress in Brussels and got back into the, the work I wanted to do. So I, I was in that unusual position among the three of us that um, I, I was uh, as committed as both of you are, but but um, I, I had to uh, tread this this uh, interesting and difficult path through uh, the, the the Labour Party situation as it was. The government asked the Irish Council European Movement to organise the Yes campaign. And my memory is that Michael Sweetman, who at that stage was in the Confederation of Irish Industry, was seconded by CII to the European movement, effectively to run the campaign. And I was actually working in the CII at the time. I was working on the negotiations for the food sector, but um, in a private capacity, encouraged by my employers, but it wasn't on their behalf. Um, I was on a speaker's panel for the European movement and every Saturday or whatever it was, uh, you would get your list for the night, for the following week. And you might attend three, maybe four meetings in a week and you would go where you were sent. Uh, You had absolutely no idea what to expect. Uh, Sometimes there were huge meetings. Sometimes they were tiny meetings. Sometimes the electricity didn't work and we went ahead anyway. Sometimes there were yes and no speakers. Uh, Once or twice the no speakers were turned up and I who appeared for the yes side was asked, could I do the no side as well? So um, one occasion I remember fisticuffs breaking out at the back of the hall and particularly all the women sitting in the front of the head, go on love, go on, go on, don't let them interrupt you. Um, so they were immensely lively. Uh, you were, to, I have to say, immensely courteous. Um, you might be attacked from a height intellectually, but there was no, I, I don't remember single incidents of um, any kind of aggression against me as a, as a, as a yes campaigner. But um, it was very informal. But I think that was because of the level of engagement of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, People would just rock up to what was available. And uh, we, as that panel through the European movement, tried to to, to respond to that demand. Yeah, I mean, that that was essentially what we're going to move on to the next question. I think you've already got that, that sort of the main issues on the doorstep and the campaign itself. What was that atmosphere like? And I think I just mentioned that I think the Irish Council of the European Movement is now what we call European Movement Ireland. But yeah, yeah. 50 cups at the back of the hall and being asked to do the yes and no vote is, uh, I think, kind of uh, representative. But I think I'd ask uh, Tony and Alan, you know, what kind of main issues came up for you in terms of the campaign or what was the atmosphere like in terms of on the, the political left or the right in terms of inside the Labour Party and the like? Was there regional variations, gender issues, kind of age aspects, that level of how informed people were of the debate or not? So I think those kind of interesting questions. There was a questioning attitude. I think um, the size of the the participation in the meetings showed, I think, that people had a great curiosity about it. I think a great many people in the country had very open minds uh, at the time, uh, and they were open to, to, to... examining the issues. 
Um, it's the kind of debate that I think would be very difficult to have today, given the way social media operate. Um, and in any case, the atmosphere uh, for that kind of thing is completely different. Uh, but th the main lines of the argument really had, had almost everything to do uh, with just two, two basic issues. One, basic bread and butter economic issues. What does this mean economically for the Irish economy, for Irish people? Uh, and the other side of it was um, the more kind of political, social element. Uh, what does this mean for the way we organise our society in Ireland? Will it make it easier or more difficult for us, uh, for example, to make social progress? Uh, will we be taking on obligations that are repugnant to the Irish people. And this issue of neutrality uh, became one of the most, one of the hottest topics. You know, on the one hand, uh, those of us who are pro said we're not undertaking any uh, defense, military obligations of any kind. People on the other side saying, well, this European construct is potentially very militaristic and there's a prospect that we'll see our young men being conscripted into a European army and going somewhere undefined uh, to be killed. Th those were the kinds of arguments that happened. And Tony, I don't know if you've any um, sort of thoughts about what that sort of atmosphere was like on your end of things. Well, of course, <laughs> Adam's right. I mean, these these were the big issues that were being discussed generally. But um, inside the Labour Party, um, there was... Um, a, this feeling that um, we were being dragged into a, a capitalist club uh, that uh, was going to uh, rule out um, advances in, in the social area and so on. And you'd have to go back into the uh, period um, four or five years earlier when the Labour Party had um, embarked on a, on a huge left-wing policy development programme. Uh, which was started by Brandon Halligan when he became General Secretary, and which led to the production of, of a whole series of policy documents, which uh, were, um, uh, shall we say, advanced in, in terms of their, of their left-wing proposals. The critical thing was that this was put to the people in the 69 election, in which the Labour Party did very bad. And the, this, this led to, to uh, an internal situation in the party, which was very difficult. Uh, the party had made a commitment, it had been rejected, and this then got caught up in this whole business about uh, entering the, 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 the European community. And uh, um, going back to Alan's remarks about bread and butter, the broad view of the party was, as I, and I said it earlier, that basically, um, uh, A, the, the party's left-wing agenda had been rejected or put aside. Secondly, there was a huge threat uh, from this capitalist club, which would uh, affect us economically. And, and so the party reduced itself to this idea that we, we sought a no vote followed by uh, um, trying to negotiate an association agreement. Um, it was, um, and, and then there were, there were also just a couple of other things we haven't mentioned so far. Uh, that is, the thing that was a, a huge problem for nearly for most of our members was that the only other 
political organization of a party nature that was involved on the low side was Sinn Féin. And you have to remember that the um, the referendum took place just a matter of weeks after Bloody Sunday. The situation in Northern Ireland, as part of the context, was very, very difficult. And you had, during the campaign, posters put up across the, the country with uh, saying internees called for a no vote. Internment had been introduced by the British government. And, and Sinn Féin, or, or, or the IRA, or whoever, got these posters out. And, and this further complicated the issue. Conor Cruz O'Brien is very uh, noted for his remarks about how difficult it was uh, to appear on the same side on a platform with anyone from Sinn Féin in the light of what was happening in the North. So, well, it was um, a, a complex situation inside the Labour Party, which, uh, had, which became very divided. Um, just before we go on to the next question, I think it'd be interesting to see how... Was there a sense of variety of views on the Fine Gael side of or in terms of the government side of things and advocating for a yes vote? Was there that division or variation of themes? Uh, well, firstly, Fine Gael wasn't in government at the no, time. No, uh, secondly, I'm a member of the party, but I certainly had no role then. Mm. Uh, but no, Fine Gael was, was, was almost unanimously in favour. I mean, it was, Gareth Fitzgerald wasn't the leader at the time, but he was hugely influ influential with the membership. And uh, there was, you know, it wasn't an issue for Fine Gael. But can I just go back on what Alan was saying? I mean, he mentioned both Mansholt and Buchanan. But I think that would be to say that was representative of the audiences he was dealing with because I was only working, operating with, in Dublin. And, you know, agricultural policy was mentioned, but regional policy really wasn't an issue, not, in, you know, in the inner city, for instance. I mean, the issue was jobs. And uh, there was this issue that, you know, this would decimate Irish industry. I think there was a recognition that, you know, Irish industry was vulnerable but that uh, the greater uh, country, you know, that this would grow the Irish economy in a way that would provide support and protection for anybody who did leave, leave, lose their job and that it wouldn't be a question of being condemned to eternal unemployment. There was also um, a, a sense that, you know, Irish, that firms would come and settle here, that this would grow the economy. Um, so there were other issues of a wider sense, like getting out from under the UK. Those, yeah, I think just on that point, Catherine, um, that was certainly an issue, uh, the UK issue that yeah. I thought resonated quite a bit. Now, I suppose, in a way, it was something that would come up in the agricultural context because we had, um, from 1968, uh, a modified. <laughs> free trade agreement with the UK, um, which was widely seen to be very unbalanced in favour of the UK. I mean, one of the few uh, concrete obligations that agreement included was that Ireland would use its best endeavours to export 638,000 live cattle uh, to the UK uh, every year. So that um, in on the agricultural side, and I think also... In, in parts of the industrial uh, circles, there was a feeling 
that this joining the EEC uh, gave us an opportunity to get out from under the UK uh, and to operate in an environment uh, in which we would have um, a great deal more influence uh, on, on, on what was going to happen to us. The other point uh, that seemed to count a lot with the anti-membership uh, people uh, was the proposition that um, while we had, as I said, a number of foreign firms located in Ireland at the time, uh, they were there because of the tax holiday uh, that, that we had granted. And the proposition from the opposition was that once that tax holiday ran out, all these firms would disappear, uh, not giving any consideration to what else we might do uh, to encourage people to keep on coming here. Yeah, and I think that that feeds kind of into the that next question now, saying, looking back, were there any issues or concerns <coughs> that might have been overblown or exaggerated? And then vice versa, was there anything that perhaps didn't come up in the campaign or in the referendum that's now become incredibly important? I think of the debates about an EU army or the end of the tax holiday or Irish industry being decimated. Were the doom was the doom were the doomsayers right or were they overblown? And were the sunlit uplands as sunlit as we we'd been promised? I don't know if anyone wants to start. There, was, there were sunlit uplands that we we didn't see. Again, looking on the agricultural side. Um, in, I think, sometime around 1970, um, I did a, a forecast, a fairly crude forecast, I have to say, of what the effects economically would be on, on Irish agriculture. Um, it was regarded as being absolute pie in the sky, starry-eyed economic nonsense at the time. I look back at it a few years later when I was working for the IFA in Brussels and I found I had been completely wrong. I had hugely underestimated uh, the benefit that was going to come from it. On the industrial side, I think um, the fact that we were able to keep the, the, the tax holiday for foreign firms uh, for quite some time after that, and there's a good history to, to that that needs looking at, uh, meant that the idea of Ireland being a gateway into a bigger European market um, actually counted. Uh, it was understood, it worked, uh, and it was exploited uh, by, by a great many firms. Um, and I remember that during the course of the campaign, uh, the IDA had to contend quite a lot with the proposition uh, that these foreign firms were, were carpetbaggers They'd come get the tax holiday, and once the tax holiday ran out, they, they would disappear again. Um, and people kept making that, that assertion, despite the fact that the record of um, durability of IDA-assisted firms in Ireland was far better than the durability of, of domestically-based firms, uh, as, as Catherine knows. Now, domestically-based firms did face enormous problems, we had the motor assembly industry uh, for which we negotiated a special protocol. It actually collapsed long before the, the protocol ran out. But it was like many other issues we've seen in, in, in more recent times. Um, a big part of the employment uh, that had been devastated in the motor assembly industry um, switched over to making car components. And we had for a time uh, a fairly flourishing industry here, making wiring looms for cars. That 
eventually collapsed also because of the economics of the motor industry. But, you know, there was a whole dynamism in the picture that the anti-EEC people didn't either see or, or expect ever to see. I was trying to remember last night, there was a song um, that the Sinn Féin used to sing um, on the basis that um, all Ireland would be, would be a source of cheap labour. And the first line, and I can't find anybody who remembers any more of this, oh, we want your sons and daughters for the roar. And there was quite a jolly chorus to that. Um, but in terms of what happened, I, I think the the impact on indigenous industry, all those small firms was very negative. And a huge number of small Irish firms did close in the 70s. Now, I'll say two separate things about that. Firstly, I was working in the food industry. And what was really extraordinary was the way the food industry responded. If you look at where the dairy industry was, say, in the mid-60s, compared to where the dairy industry was in the mid-80s, you know, and they now are, are you know, people like, like Kerry Foods and people, you know, are our industrial giants. But they, it, it was this, this pressure to, to consolidate, to cooperate. And a lot of the leadership came from those kind of, what, what you would, might not have expected to have been the most, uh, the most entrepreneurial. But it really was astonishing and the way that standards on farms were improved because if you want to produce cheese and baby food and things, you need higher standards, all that kind of thing, to which the agricultural community responded dramatically. Um, the other thing, of course, is don't forget the energy crisis. As soon as we joined, we slammed straight into that wall. So um, it's hard to, you know, it, it really is very hard to distinguish EU membership from the impact of, of the energy crisis. And Tony? The, um, the um, very strongly pro-European group who were very, very influential in, in leadership terms, but as I say, who, who had to wait until they, they had the um, uh, uh, approval of, of, of the electorate and then were able to effectively take over. Um, within three weeks, I think, of, of the referendum, Brendan Corish made a speech uh, abandoning the idea of the party going it, going it alone and, and calling basically on Fine Gael to agree to a coalition arrangement, which of course happened within months. And you had the national coalition government formed. Uh, so there, there were things going on all the time below the surface on the Labour side, which uh, uh, were sort of mysteries of their own particular kind, but which worked out way way on the, the uh, uh, succeeding um, period. Which we probably come to. I mean, the uh, I think in, in, in looking at 1972, uh, apart from the referendum itself, the Paris summit in, in October that year was absolutely crucial. There was another issue of great concern at the time, which is still um, uh, a major problem for us. I remember um, having a meeting uh, with Paddy Hillary, uh, who was then Minister of Foreign Affairs, and negotiating the the the, the treaty. Um, and the, the two issues that were concerning him, uh, you know, coming towards the end of the negotiations were sugar quota, as Tony has mentioned, and fisheries. Yeah. 
And I remember him saying very passionately, look, you have to support me. I'm fighting on my back uh, for these things. Uh, but the fisheries presented an enormous problem um, because clearly Irish territorial waters and Irish influenced waters were going to be a huge part of the expanded uh, community's waters. But the Irish fishing fleet at the time was basically a small-scale inshore fishing fleet. Uh, and it proved to be politically impossible uh, to make a strong claim to have more control, and this was before fish quotas, but to have more control over all of the waters to which, in theory, uh, we should have been able to, to stake a claim because uh, of the nature of our fisheries. I mean, the, 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 the put-down from the British side and indeed from from others in the European community, was that the Irish fishermen were the only ones who went home for their tea, uh, which is a pretty cruel thing to say. But it reflected the fact that we had basically an inshore fishing industry. And it was very, it was actually impossible to maintain a claim uh, to bigger rights than we actually got at the time over fisheries. And that has continued to be a major difficulty ever since and a source of huge disappointment, understandably, uh, to coastal communities all over Ireland. Yeah. Course, sorry. The fisheries yeah. issue uh, has another um, significant impact, which is, of course, the failure to get what they wanted to in Norway, voting not to, not to join. Uh, I mean, the, 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 apart from so their particular kind of sovereignty issues, fisheries was a huge issue for them. And uh, they dropped out of the uh, of the race by their their referendum went no. So I think that kind of leads us nicely onto the sort of the final question, which I think is maybe the the, the biggest and the broadest one. But kind of looking back on fifty years, how has Ireland sort of been changed or transformed by that EU membership? And um, maybe what would the next fifty years look like? What can we see in sort of what future room is there for kind of transformation or change or Ireland's place in Europe? I mean, we have these tectonic shifts of the, the UK is now left. We have this war with, between with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You can see these big sort of ship um, plates shifting. So I think trying to see that fifty year social and economic transformation of Ireland since accession, maybe some ideas about where that could possibly end up going in the future, and that sort of. As taking 72, that referendum was a sort of transformational pivot point in our, kind of Ireland's domestic and foreign position in the world. So I think, uh, Catherine, we want to start with yourself and we'll Yeah, on. I mean, you know, we're 100 years old this year and looking back, well, not for the 100 years, um, but if you look at the kind of seismic moments, that certainly was one. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it was immensely valuable for Ireland, that our membership of the European Union, but it wasn't a free lunch. Um, and we had to roll with uh, good and bad times. Um, but I think there is no doubt, at least I have no doubt that um, most of our prosperity and a great deal of our national sense of self is tied up in, in that. Um, on a kind of diplomatic front, on a world front, um, 
we always were used to being the small marginal country and that we would kind of dart around trying to find a place among the bigger fish that was most most useful for us, uh, not taking a particularly strong line on most things and just saving ourselves for the main issues. But I sense a, sh- a change in the last maybe 10 years and the European Union is the framework within this has happened. We're getting beginning to get used to being a middle-sized country instead of a small country, that we have a standing, that we have a list of priorities, and that we will fight for them, and that we can, and that we'll be listened to. Um, the departure of, of the UK is a very serious shock in many ways for us. But I think the response of the union as a whole to our our issues on Brexit gave, you know, I, th- I, th- I think provided real confidence to many decision makers that we would, in fact, be listened to. Can I just make one point about our membership? Um, we received huge transfers of money from the European Union. And I think on the whole, we spent them relatively well. And I think what was fundamental to the changes in this country is we spent most of our money on training and education. Um, If you go to Spain, they have wonderful roads and infrastructure and something like 20% youth unemployment. And they made a decision to spend on infrastructure. We survived with shockingly bad infrastructure for a very long time and spent the money on education instead. And my view would be that was among the very crucial and most successful decisions that we made. I have to say I agree with Catherine on that point. Uh, And it's, I think, significant that the first Irish appointee to the European Commission, Paddy Hillary, uh, was very instrumental in building up the role of the European Social Fund um, from which, as Catherine said, we have benefited greatly. I think we showed great imagination in, in the use we made of the European Structural Fund, um, partly due to the efforts of the, um, the Confederation of Irish Industry uh, and their, their, their delegate in Brussels, a great friend of mine, the late Paddy Jordan, who yeah. was very instrumental in, in, in helping that along. Looking back on 50 years of membership, I have to say, and I'm not usually given to these kind of flights of, of uh, oratory or hyperbole, I think it's been a process of absolute liberation, culturally, economically, socially, intellectually for Ireland. And Ireland today is such a different place from, from where Catherine and I first went to work you know, back in, in, in the late 1960s. Um, uh, it was possible to dream of it then. Um, we've made it a reality. Uh, and I think it has changed this country uh, greatly for the better. Now, it's been, it's been controversial all through a number of the social and political changes that we have seen uh, have been very difficult. Uh, but I... I when people argue with me about what the effect of the European Union community and so on has been, I, I look at the world today and I ask one question. 
can we imagine what would be the state of Europe today if we didn't have the European Union? Uh, I think we would be in a much darker place, uh, a much more difficult place, if we didn't have the European Union, which has its faults, uh, undoubtedly. Looking at the role that we have played, uh, I would probably be less complimentary than Catherine has been uh, of how we have managed it. I think we have been, and still today, are too timorous in our approach uh, to political relations with the other member states and in our ambitions for what the European Union can do. Uh, I think we, we have shown that we're capable uh, of, of, you know, living uh, in, this, in this community. Um, but I think we, we have underestimated uh, our ability and maybe our ambition uh, to shape uh, what it does and how it does it. But it's been, I, I think, undoubtedly a hugely positive experience. Last word to you, Tony. There's no question, I, I think, about that. And um, um, just picking up on, on a couple of points, Steve, I said earlier on that I thought that the, um, the key moment in, in 1972 was the October summit, uh, where the, the, the leaders of the, of, of the now expanding union really set out their views on, on, on where Europe should go. In fact, uh, Jack Lynch made a, a very good speech of that, but the, from many, from the point of view of people like myself, the key moment in it was the intervention by Brandt on the whole question of, of, of the social direction of Europe. This was then followed, in our case, by the appointment that Alan has made of Paddy Hillary, who, who was a, a remarkable commissioner who, um, picked up certain trends that were developing very slowly in the, in the union and the social area and developed them into a very strong movement for, for social Europe. Now, that, that's been a an issue from then on because there have been ups and downs. There was social Europe under Delors was a big issue and then it fell back again. But always, it has always been there as, as an extremely important element in, in the whole development. Another point of honest that I agree with is when you use the word timorous, one of the, the, the things you have to look at over the, over the period since entry has been the successive treaty referenda. And we have signally lost two ref referenda. Uh, and I, I think if you go back and analyze those uh, losses, they were because of, of a failure uh, to assert the positive issues and, 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 and to um, be too um, defensive on, on, on matters that um, uh, gave uh, room for, for, for negative forces, um, which also led particularly, I think, in, in, in a couple of those cases, to a lot of people who normally would have gone out and voted yes, staying at home. I mean, you had the, 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 the Nice first referendum and second referendum. The... Um, swing from no to yes was made up entirely by people coming out voted who haven't voted the first time. If you do this, the, the, the statistics. And um, the other thing is that we have to also be conscious when you look at these referenda that there is a constant, something like 30% of the electorate here who will always vote no on European issues. And um, I think that's something that 
uh, one has to bear in mind. Because I say what happened in Nice was that that 30% came out and an awful lot of people on the other side stayed at home. And then it all reversed uh, some months, months later. Um, I, 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 I think it's, it is quite clear that the, the whole experience uh, has been a positive one and where we have uh, been prepared to play uh, a positive role and where we have committed resources to that in terms of, in many cases, in terms of uh, the sort of individuals who have been slotted into either the European Parliament or the Commission or, or, or wherever, and that we have a considerable uh, contribution to make, and we have made it, but um, also as we go forward, uh, if we're going to talk about the, the, the next period, there are issues about where Ireland fits itself into the, the uh, emerging um, pattern of, of, of discussion of, of key issues. Our whole Hanseatic experience at the moment is one that has to be has to be looked at. But um, I, I, if you were to think about where this country would be if we had followed Norway and voted no, uh, I think uh, you know you would be talking about a very different and a very much more negative picture. I think that would be the great basis for an alternate history novel to take a no referendum vote and see where you'd end up. It'd be quite interesting. I don't know if anyone wants to jump in or say anything before we uh, we wrap up there. I'd say one thing. I think Paddy Hillary is one of the unsung heroes of of Irish political life. Um, people talk endlessly about the Lamas Whitaker uh, relationship, but the Hillary Paddy Lynch relationship. I have no in it in the Department of Education. I have no idea uh, doubt is equally important to where we are today. Great. And I think with that, I think we can wrap up. And uh, yeah, I'd just like to say, I think looking back, you know, you can see that there are kind of weeks where maybe decades happen and maybe 1972 around the referendum was one of those. And perhaps we're living in another one for maybe less positive reasons as well now. But it's interesting to see the kind of back and forth and the, the echoes of the past and today and where we're going to end up in the future. But um, just to say thank you very much to our speakers, Catherine, Tony and Alan, for your time, your engagement and your your, uh, your analysis and your insights. I think it was great. I really enjoyed it. I love this topic. So I had a great time with this. And for those of you listening or watching to this, if you want to learn more about the IIA, the Global Europe Project, and any other podcasts or videos that you have, you can check out our website and our social media. And with that, I just want to say goodbye and thanks very much. And Thank you. Bye, Alex. Thank you. Bye, Alex. Thanks. Good to see you again, Tony, Catherine. Yes.